Constantinople has fallen, and all across Europe, ancient vampires known as Methuselah rise to claim vast territories as their own. This is the War of Princes, where the political maneuvering of old stand side by side with the armies of ghouls and canines clashing in the night. But vampires are not the only ones making this land their own. In the wild places, the Guru have their cairns. Mages have ancient sites of power for magic. The Shadow Inquisition has risen to eradicate the enemies of God. And the enigmatic Fae have their own plans. Welcome to the Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode three of season two of the World of Dark Ages podcast, where we go through the Dark Ages line of books and talk about each of them, both in terms of history and as gaming books. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. A quick service announcement. I had some trouble with the last episode, and I managed to mostly get it fixed. However, it still doesn't work properly on Spotify. So if you want the full episode, uh, go to our homepage or use one of the other services we're on, like Apple Podcasts. Now, with that done, Peter, did you get any Christmas presents that fits the theme of this podcast? Uh, well, uh, yeah, it kind of depends on what you look at it. Uh, I, I did get a promise of getting help with uh, making some 15th century outfits. Ah. Uh, so that, that might be useful. <laughs> I don't know, perhaps later on. Yeah, I got myself a leather hat sort of um, pseudo witch hunter thing, which is a bit later mm. than, than this period, yeah. but uh, I like it. And then I got a kite shield. Um, sorry, Ooh, not a kite nice. shield, a heater shield, mm. um, a heater, yeah. which is is really really cool. I'm still trying to figure out all the straps on it because there's there's a strap for the forearm, there's a guiche for having all the shoulders, and there's a strap for uh, hanging it off the wall. So I'm still trying to figure that out, but it's really really cool, and <laughs> I'm I need to uh, to find out what kind of heraldry I want to put uh, on the front. It's um, I, I don't think it's one that I'm going to be bringing to any laps, but I, I wanted a shield for a long time, and now I have one. Now you have one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so this is the last part looking at the core book, and as always, we start with the art. And I will uh, start with the very end of the book, where the map from the front repeats only now. It's divided into canine domains, which is pretty good, because it gives you an idea of what's what. Otherwise, I think the art is pretty underwhelming. I like the big, big battle scene that covers pages 250 and 251 but other than that nothing really grabs me and i have the art in the appendix i think a lot of those pictures are really silly yeah yeah i completely agree with that uh when it comes to the uh, to the art in the appendix uh, i'm assuming you mean for the different kind of of um, um, creatures uh, yeah exactly that appear with with stats and things like that and i don't know i I I'm, I don't really dislike the kind of artwork, but it is uh, a very non-gothic horror kind of artwork, which is uh, I don't know. It, it would have suited better in uh, um, in a in a more fantastical game like Dungeons and Dragons or something, because yeah. uh, like the the, the fey creatures uh, running around uh, somewhere. I can't find them at right now. They they look rather silly. They they look like the silly kind of of fake creatures that you might have, but it doesn't really fit the whole uh, dark creature of the creatures of the night running around in uh, as as vampire should be about. Uh, so yeah, 
Uh, as for the, the battle scene, uh, yeah, at least the half that is on page 250, I kind of like, uh, except for the fact that, that amongst all these 13th century men-at-arms, there seems to be in the very center a, a guy wearing a, a Viking helmet with this kind of uh, eye protections that you don't really see uh, in the th 13th century. Um, as for the opposing army on page 251, they consist mostly of what seems to be... I assume they're supposed to be Tsimichi and, and their horse, so but too. they also have skeletons. Yeah. And and some very weird swords, if you look at, at <laughs> the guy uh, in front of the banner. Uh, so, so, yeah, it's... They're cool, but again, it's like, is this really for the right uh, role-playing game? Yeah, there, uh. there there, are a lot of pictures all over the book. Uh, as we mentioned also in the, the first episode yeah. we did, that really seems to fit more into a, a high fantasy or at least Warhammer style. So um, we'll, we'll see what happens with the art in the later books. <laughs> yeah. We start with chapter seven, drama! Um, yes. <laughs> this starts by going over the permutations of the system, giving examples of what you can do and what attribute plus ability combinations can do it. I think this is really cool. It shows the versatility of the system and it helps both storytellers and players understand how the system really works. Um, do you have any specific comments on this, uh, this first section here? Well, there is... I would like to point out that uh, that corruption and buying and selling use the same combinations of ability plus <laughs> uh, plus uh, plus stuff. So so yeah, it's it's manipulation and commerce for both corruption and buying and selling. I don't know if that's supposed to be a comment on on uh, the the status quo of the early two thousands, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's. Uh, Overall, I, I really like it. I think that uh, I do like that. For example, um, there there's a nice mix of of uh, um, scores not being uh, pointless. Like for for example, in uh, in some versions of Dungeons and Dragons, dexterity is kind of the score that that you really need to to have. And uh, if like if if you don't have a good dexterity score. A lot of of skill checks will uh, you will be really bad at them and 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 constitution for example isn't really used for anything but hit points but in in this system you do have uh, many different kinds of of combinations so for example swimming uh, they use uh, stamina and uh, athletics i think yes. it is so it's it like there's there's no useless uh, scores that you can uh, that that you kind of just don't have any have any use for. Um, there there are some combinations where uh, I think you could probably expand it, and of course, as the storyteller, you can always allow it. And I'm I'm thinking, for example, that um, hunting is uh, perception and something else survival, uh, and I, I feel guess. that yeah, yeah. And I think that you could probably use uh, something else instead, like intelligence or or charisma, perhaps, depending on how you hunt mm. uh, as a vampire. Um, but except for that, um, 
Yeah, there, n- nothing really that stands out as as being. No, no hun- the the hunt is actually just perception, oh, which. Okay. Uh, w- but but yeah, I, like you you could easily switch it around uh, if. If you motivate it to your to your storyteller, that like yeah, I'm 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 not going to skulk around in in alleyways. I'm gonna go pick up a, a merchant in a bar or whatever. Yeah, I mean, also with hunting, it I find it a bit weird to just default to a role. I I'd always want to put a little more into hunting simply because the whole drinking blood is so central to being a vampire. So I'd probably go for more of a role-playing approach to it. Like, what are you going to to do? How are you going to do it rather than just rolling? But I can definitely see that in some situations, yes, let's just make a roll because the feeding is not so important to the story, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah. If, like most, most vampires have probably fed more often than players have <laughs> role-played hunting it. So... So after a while, I can see it's it's kind of like yeah, of course it it should be a central part of it, but if it's just the the kind of same old um, like yeah, I, I just need to feed for the night. Uh, I'm I'm gonna go out and and do a quick hunt, then just roll for it to see if you find anything. But if you've you've had a big battle and uh, you're in a, a city that you've never been in before and you're desperate for blood because otherwise you're going to frenzy, then yeah, then it would be more oh, interesting yeah. to roleplay it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, but, but that's about all I had for, for the, um, at least for this part of, of the uh, mechanics. Yeah, one thing that, that I looked at uh, or ha- that I have looked at quite a bit uh, lately because I've been writing some scenario stuff is Feats of Strength. And to me, they seem a bit like you can do a bit too much with strength, like a normal human can do things that I would think almost falls into the supernatural. I know that there are some competitors and strongman competitions who can do some really amazing mm. things, but it it sometimes it seems a bit like you're you're a bit too strong, but it's it's a very minor thing. Um, we then move on to combat, and I'll start by saying I'm not going to point out the many many historical inaccuracies in the weapons, armor, and shields. In a way, it might actually be easier to point out what they get right. This is really poorly researched, unfortunately. Um, So, um, I I do have... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go go ahead, go ahead. I'm I'm gonna... (laughs) You'll have some comments afterwards. uh, Yeah, I I have some as well. Yeah, I have some comments. First and foremost, they talk about dual weapon fighting and how this won't be common until the Renaissance. And it's mostly seen among Saracens using two swords and uh, or northern barbarians using two axes. In reality, two-weapon fighting was always and will always be extremely uncommon, and there was no greater use of two-weapon fighting in the Muslim world or among barbarians than in the Christian world. Two-weapon fighting is much more common on the screen than it ever was in real life. In fact, if you see two-weapon fighting, it's actually mainly in sort of... um, Eastern martial arts systems, uh, the Filipino martial arts systems, are famous for two-sticks approaches. But when you're talking about that, that's often in a sort of more self-defense or in situations where you yeah. don't have access yeah. to quote-unquote real weapons, I should say battlefield weapons. If you're in a real battlefield situation with access to actual weapons, then if you're not using a two-handed weapon, then in your offhand, you'll want to use a shield if you don't have access to a shield, yeah. sure, 
pick up another weapon because it's always better to have something in your offhand. But this this just came off as a bit Hollywood uh, to me. Yeah, and 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 it is a very much a Hollywood invention because shields have a similar problem to helmets in that they do what they're supposed to do, namely cover up the person yeah, exactly. who, who has them. And and if you pay, and I don't remember the, who said it first, but but it's like if you pay millions of dollars to put someone's face on the screen, screen the last thing you want to do is cover it up with a helmet or a or a shield. Uh, and I can understand it from a cinematic point of view. Um, I think Tom Hardy does a good job of kind of um, nullifying or or kind of working against that because he does quite a bit of roles where his face is covered. Uh, Carl Urban in in Dread. I was just thinking uh, about that. Judge Dread is is a really good yeah. other example. Uh, but but yeah, like shields are amazing at doing what they're supposed to do, namely protect yourself. Uh, and now that we have YouTube, there are uh, you can just look up examples where people fight with uh, two swords against someone with a sword and a shield or someone with a spear and a shield against uh, someone with, with just a shield or, or a, a, a long sword or a two-handed sword. And, and you can see how effective a shield is. Uh, as you mentioned, like if you don't have a shield, it's it's usually better to have something uh, instead of just uh, an empty hand. Uh, and usually, you would use that other something as as a defensive yeah. weapon to parry. Um, but but yeah, more shields. Shields are exactly. Awesome. I mean, I know that that it's not really, shall we say, realistic battlefield conditions. But uh, at my work, yeah. I've done. Uh, LARP fighting with the kids and at one point I was uh, I had a kid who had a LARP sword and a shield and I had um, a LARP longsword and I'm obviously trained in longsword fighting and this kid knew absolutely nothing about fighting but just the fact that they had a shield meant that all of a sudden it was a lot more difficult for me to actually do anything and that was someone who didn't know how to use a shield or a sword properly when and then taught them just a little bit about how to hold the shield and how to strike and get the shield back online i i was in real trouble so it, it just goes mm -hmm. to show but that <laughs> we can have a lengthy discussion about uh, hollywood versus reality yeah yeah that's that's a different <laughs> another point was there's a thing under ranged attacks where they say that quote knives spears and bows are a staple of mid medieval armies and just no uh i mean sure spears and knives uh, as yeah. as melee weapons, yeah, you spears were quite common, and and having a knife as a backup, yes, but but not as range weapons. No medieval army threw knives, and only the only ones still using throwing spears might be some of the less technologically advanced pagan tribes in Eastern Europe, and hell, even bows were actually rare among armies in in Christian Europe at this time, like the 12th, 30s, because the crossbows had just become so much more common. And it wasn't really until the English warbow made it to the continent that bows sort of became a thing in, in armies. For hunting, sure, and among, let's say, bandits, bows would be quite common. But in an army, no, that would be crossbows. Uh, but I will say this, yeah. you know, historical inaccuracy is one thing. Sometimes research can be difficult, especially back in 2002 when the internet wasn't what it was today. However, mm. um, you know, at least that is that is just you fail to do some research. But this is a gaming book 
and you would expect the people to write it to um, be good with game technical things. And there are just a couple of things here that I have to point out. The first one's under blunt weapons, where you have a listing for both club, cudgel, and mace. And all three weapons have the same profile, except that the mace is more difficult to conceal. Uh, so setting aside the question of why you'd add a metal head to a club if it doesn't change anything, uh, <laughs> why have three separate entities for uh, entries for essentially the same weapon? And then there's the crossbow. A heavy crossbow does a base of four damage plus damage successes, while heavy armor, so a male hauberk, and knight's armor, which is male hauberk plus reinforcements, have a soak of four. So you kind of wonder why knights feared crossbowmen, especially since a spear in the hands of a person of average strength is more dangerous doing five damage. Um, it feels like they, they really should have looked into adding things like armor piercing, just, you know, to, yeah. because weapons seem just horribly um, uh, ineffective, especially ranged weapons. And, I mean, obviously, maybe they want to make it so that you don't one-shot people, but it, it still kind of goes against the, um, the the feel of the setting, which should be this, it's, it's the dark medieval setting. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and at the same time, I think that that vampire or the whole story, White Wolf's storytelling system, like it's, it's kind of a known fact that, that one of the main weaknesses of that system is combat. That is very true. Because <laughs> it's, it's not really supposed to be uh, about combat, but, but at the same time, uh, seems... And I'm I'm not really going to say that that the Dark Ages as a role playing game is more about combat than than modern knights because we all like running around as as kind of blood fueled superheroes. But but at the same time, I I see your point and I agree with it uh, because there are so many like little inconsistencies that's that's just weird. Like for example, it seems that that using a dagger. Uh, on on dagger it says that uh, on, under notes it says that it has a difficult difficulty of minus one and I'm assuming that means that it's easier to use it, which kind of makes no sense, especially since a a knife, which isn't really that different from a dagger, doesn't have that same note, and a great sword has difficulty of plus one, and. I'm I'm finding it kind of hard to understand why a much longer weapon that a great sword is would be more difficult to use and hit my opponent with than a dagger, especially if I'm facing off against like a, a longer weapon. Yeah, reach is uh, so incredibly important. Yeah, reach and timing yeah. and and so so yeah, there there are some things that are just weird um, javelins for example they do more damage when thrown than when used as a thrusting weapon in melee so yeah but but i i could go yeah. on and i'm not going to I'm, <laughs> I'm going to turn it over to you and, and hear if you have any more comments yeah. on this because it's yeah yeah well i'm i'm just going to to mention it uh just uh, there there are a bunch of inaccuracies when it comes to the to the kind of of uh, uh weapons and armor how they are described uh, and most of them have to do with Hollywood uh, myths, I presume. Uh, so, for example, you you have uh, composite armor that is oh. supposed to be there. It's it's the kind of standard 
studded leather armor that that you see in in fantasy movies and in in rock concerts uh but I think it's it's a fun little tidbit to know where that myth probably comes from. What, and Rob Halford? The thing is that uh, no, <laughs> no, it's actually way before. Him. Uh, or, or probably the the thing is that if if you look at the, there are certain certain pieces of armor that if you just look at them and you don't really know what they're about, they kind of look like black leather armor with a bunch of studs on it. Uh, the thing is that. That leather, the reason why it's black is probably because it's it's aged, if it survived at all, um, which is very rare. Uh, but more importantly, what it is, is that you have uh, the, the coat of plates, which is a, a, um, a bunch of, of metal uh, plates of various sizes uh, attached with, uh, with rivets. Uh, to a leather or more commonly a cloth cover yeah. uh, and you would put the plates on the inside for various reasons uh, but if you look at them from the outside all you would see is the the studs is the leather or or the fabric and uh, a, a bunch of of, of studs uh, so for someone who doesn't and you have uh, you have gauntlets and and leg armor as well and and uh, uh, arm protection using the same kind of, of uh, built me with the same methods so if if you just look at something and you don't know what it is and you don't care about doing the research then it can kind of looks like uh, just uh, studded leather uh, and and the same kind of goes with with the infamous ring mail which is supposed <laughs> to be like large metal rings sewn to something and from what I can tell that it's ju- that's just probably a bad in- interpretation of um, of period artwork because uh, the artists of, of that, those times sometimes when they wanted to show someone wearing chainmail, they would make the rings really really large so you can tell that that's what it's supposed to Plus be. Plus, then they didn't have to draw um, that many rings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but but yeah, there there are also some things that like for example you mentioned knives and spears and and. Uh, something else being thrown, and uh, and at the same time they also mentioned that that the nobility has a dislike for oh, yeah, that was for those kinds weird. of weapons, which yeah because they didn't because the lance the knightly weapon of the lance is basically just a spear. Uh, when uh, at this time uh, you started getting well not necessarily knives but but daggers which are just knives designed for fighting. Uh, that came, you could get them with matching sets to your sword, and and they would be used um, when nobility would fight each other. When they would kind of, um, you you would need them to stab through chainmail, or or later on when uh, plate armor became more common, you would need them when you were wrestling your opponent and needed needed them to stab them in the groin or or in the eye slits, or or sin- uh, things like that. So it's kind of weird that such an ubiquitous weapon and tool as the knife would be seen as as something quote-unquote common yeah it's not like they disdained them it's just that they didn't use them on the battlefield because that wasn't their role you you wouldn't see a noble say oh i disdain ranged weapons so i don't want any archers in my army because then he die I mean, his army would. Yeah, exactly, and and, and hunting with with crossbows yeah. and and bows and arrows was a pastime for the nobility as well. Um, 
So yeah. So, but but that that said, actually, there there were some things that I actually did uh, like, and uh, and one of them was speaking about range weapons, is that they they mention uh, different conditions for for when it like that affects the, the difficulty and stuff like that of of. Uh, um, of ranged weapons and one of them is is wind mm. and uh, we actually do have at least one uh, very famous example of of the weather uh, affecting perhaps not the out- outcome of the entire battle but at least part of it and and that is the battle of Taunton uh, during the war of the roses ah, yes. um, and we're basically had uh, I think it was the Yorkist army who who was stationed uphill, and and they had a wind in their back. So their archers and and also this is interesting because this is English longbowmen facing other English longbowmen. So uh, so you had the the archers up on a hill with the wind in their backs, could fire uh, a further distance than their opponents downhill who had to fire uh, into the wind. Yeah, they got like 50% uh, more distance or something like that, if I recall. It's it's kind of impossible to tell because no one really measured yeah. it. But um, Todd of Todd Workshop, uh, or Todd's Workshop, he, he recently did a video on his uh, on his channel where he basically um, he tries this. He, he stands on a windy field and then he fires into the wind first he fires into the wind and then he fires with the wind or vice versa uh, and there is and of course he just uh, loses a, a handful of arrows uh, but and and the difference isn't huge but i would say that it's still significant because if you can get like 50 or even just like 20 or 10 yards uh, more than your opponent then that's still going to be enough so that you can fire on your enemy when they can't fire at you, at least not as effective. Um, and and if nothing else, it's going to have a, a demoralizing effect on on you and your friends being hit, but you can't do anything about yeah. it. Uh, so, so that's actually quite a nice touch. I don't know if they did it on purpose or... <laughs> Uh, if it's just something that happened, but uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, and credit to uh, where credit goes where credit is. Yeah, due. exactly. I mean, so. uh, the they also have like their th- rules for mounted combat and mounted archery and things. There are some some yeah. good stuff in here. It's just it's it's rather painfully obvious uh, the the mistakes that they make. Yeah, it's it's a very clunky system. Uh, I do like that's one of the other things I like that that your um, kind of. <laughs> Effectiveness uh, as as a fighting man on horseback kind of depends on how good you are uh, as as a rider, yeah. which I think is a nice touch. Uh, and and also the uh, the sling, speaking of range weapons, is at least against humans, it's it's fucking amazing because it does five points of bashing damage, uh, and and slings were. Uh, quite useful. I d- they weren't really used in in warfare in the 13th century, but go back to antiquity, and and both the Romans and and the Greeks used slings, and of course we have David in the Bible, um, and and they used slings uh, mostly by skirmishers to great effect, and and the Greeks uh, did um, they did lead shots, basically lead sling stones, uh, to increase effectiveness and range. Uh, and just to add insult to injury, <laughs> they would sometimes 
add messages on them. They they would write on them like uh, "Have at you" and and catch uh, this. this one's for you and yeah, catch <laughs> this and and things like that. It's just just yeah, it's uh, I love things like that. Uh, I don't know if uh, archers did it with with the arrows uh, in in the thirteenth century, but uh, uh, yeah, it's it's a fun little. Yeah, I've detail, seen some some reenactment where experienced slingers have taken cast lead shot and then um, shot it uh, at recreation helmets of the same period so Roman era mm. and they made some serious dents sometimes even breaking open the helmets so slings are are no uh, they're not just you know for scaring off wolves by, uh, by a sh- uh, sheep herder they were really dangerous the problem was that they required a lot of space to use so you couldn't use mass yeah. ranks of slingers the way that you could with archers or crossbowmen so uh so it, it sort of became a a weapon that wasn't used that much in war yeah so we end this chapter with uh, states of health and states of mind looking at health levels sources of damage uh, things like the blood oath derangement frenzy and a lot of of other things the only thing that i want to mention here is that under derangements they have saint vitus's dance which they correctly say is actually a disease but was thought of as a madness back in the middle ages and i don't mm. really like having derangements to be determined by what people of the times uh, thought was mental illness because then you could have a Victorian age Malkavian have homosexuality as their arrangement and that's just yeah. no let's not yeah, go into yeah. that so so please no. keep keep it to uh, to you know not not things that that people just thought were uh, were mental problems but otherwise you know yeah. I I have nothing really to say here it's it's you know all stuff that uh, you need for for the game yeah I. I, I, just as a comment on the derangement, I think that if you're doing this and and you're not like like I would make a difference between, for example, the uh, the derangement of a Malkavian and actual mental illness, uh, both for for storytelling reasons and kind of out of respect for people who actually do suffer from uh, from from mental uh, unhealth. Mm. Uh, and and because if if you make it a difference, then then you can you can do more with it than just say that oh my my uh, character is hysteric, uh, which is kind of another uh, Victorian uh, invention depending on how you look at it. Uh, but but you, it, it's also like you for some people depression for example can can touch close to home. Mm. And so if if you do something different, you can still play, for example, a Malkavian whose uh, derangement is them being depressed, but make it either make sure that it's that it's actually depression and just not the character just being emo uh, or or do something. I don't want to use the word extravagant, but but kind of do, do you know what I get to kind yeah. of like do something uh, story-wise with it so that you can really ta- t- uh, tell that this is a derangement due to the clan weakness and not just mental illness. Yeah, and of course it's also, it's always a problem when you get into things like like uh, mental problems. It, it's difficult to portray them uh, respectfully, mm. especially for um, people who, who don't have these mental issues. So yeah. it's it's... 
it's always something you want to uh, to balance, and I think in uh, in recent years we've become mm. a lot more aware of that. And yep. so it's it's just something that you want to be sure that everyone in the group you're playing with is is on board with how it's being done. But that's mm. a general thing with with a lot of things, I I think. Yeah. So chapter eight is storytelling, and we start with a section that says, "Welcome to the dark medieval," talking about both mortal and canine society at the time. The canine section repeats a lot of information that we already got in a previous chapter, so it's yeah. a bit of a waste of space in my opinion. And while the section on mortal society is fine, it's just not enough. I think they should have thrown out the stuff on canine society that was essentially just rehashing what had already been said, and then just expand on mortal society. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And and just looking through this, uh, another thing they could have thrown out was the picture of the very stereotypical D&D-esque bard on page 273. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but, but yeah, I, I completely agree that, like you mentioned, we, we already have all this information on, on the Lords of the Night and the High Clans and the Low Clans. Uh, they do give some interesting kind of ideas on um, on how these things can uh, affect uh, social situations. So, for example, high clans versus low clans in society, and how it's going to affect in in um, stuff in your in the coterie that the, the player has, uh, and and so small things like that, kind of like role playing advice. I don't mind, but. I, I would love to see more uh, that had to do with, with mortal society, uh, especially since kind of the only thing that they focus on is, is the Mother Church and, and Knights and the Crusades. And yeah, both of those were really important during this time. But the thing is that you don't just have the one Mother Church. You have, besides the Catholic Church, uh, which at this time is... is rather divided i think they had at least two popes at uh, at this time um so you had a pope and an antipope and at, at least one occasion you also had a third pope, yeah which is kind of interesting. and i'm fairly certain that if the pope uh, and the antipope meets there's going to be a huge explosion that you know maybe we should harness that for energy can we can we get a, yeah. an antipope and then harness the pope well, we energy? do have we do have two popes now that one of them retired so ah. we can always try <laughs> Uh, but but yeah but but the thing is that you also had like the the orthodox church and and you had uh, the cathars and i don't really know how split the the you had like the um the coptic church uh, down in africa or northern africa and, and um and so you had you had like you didn't have just the one church yeah uh, the russians kind of started to to uh, split off in in their version of orthodoxy if, uh, at about this time or perhaps even earlier i'm i'm not really that good at, at i need to ask a friend about uh, russian uh, church history <laughs> to be sure but but you had you had different kinds of church or not different kinds of churches but you didn't have just this monolithic church uh, of course you could play play it up that way if that's something you kind of want to emphasize in your world of darkness but historically it wasn't. Mm. Um, also, you had you, you had other things that that would still affect society and would still make um, would would still influence society hugely. Uh, one of your favorite topics, guilds, oh, yes. is starting to come around for this, uh, and and family was still very much important. Uh, so I w I would love to see like 
a bit more about other kind of um, influential institutions, if we call them that, uh, that could uh, that that you could play around with. Um, also, one of the other thing that you mentioned uh, in um, as as something that is important when it comes to the church is that. Uh, illiteracy is so widespread and so the clergy kind of has a monopoly on the written word and while that is true there are many different ways of communicating um, non-verbally so to speak without actually having to to read or write yeah the um, merchants that would later form the Hanseatic League they were starting to have such advanced bookkeeping that it actually became sort of their own mm. writing system um, and then obviously later they just adopted the the ordinary writing system but bookkeeping at the time was was really starting to yeah. uh, to take off so yeah it's, I, I feel that they they could have like you said put more stuff in here yeah and and you had you had like other things like um, in especially later on and, and it's still kind of a thing today that uh, uh, the the hobo science is a thing, and and things like that was was probably and most likely around back back even in in the dark ages. Like you had, I I would assume that most um, trades would have like different uh, symbols to to signify something. Like uh, if if you're uh, if you're a lumberman and you're going out in the forest and you're gonna look at the trees that you're going to cut down then it's not unlikely that you would have a system of carving things in, in the bark of the trees, for example, uh, and, and you would like save this tree or cut this tree down or this would make a good, uh, would make a good timber for lumber for, for such and such. And, and you would teach this to your other tradesmen and, and uh, masons are kind of famous for for their uh, weird kind of symbology, uh, symbology when it comes to the Freemasons, and and uh, they probably used things like this as well to to kind of show uh, what you were going to do, like kind of primitive blueprints, uh, and and you would also have like uh, instead of sending letters when it comes to gathering people, uh, I don't know if you have the same. I, I think it was kind of common in in Denmark as well, but. Uh, the bud kavle, mm, yeah. uh, the bidding stick, where if if you need if you needed to gather people for basically any reason, it could be anything anything from forest fires to uh, defense against the country or even rebellion. You would send a guy yeah. with basically a wooden stick with a, a carved symbol in it, and he would run uh, from his little town or village to the next one, and he would hand over the stick. Uh, and under quite severe penalties, that stick that had to be carried kind of like all over the county, because then you knew, knew that, okay, now we're gathering for perhaps for a thing or um, the political thing, not not just a, a stuff, but uh, but the thing that, that we still have in, in uh, Altinget in uh, the mm. um, uh, Icelandic parliament, for example, uh, uh, or... or uh, or, or if you needed to defend your country against invaders. Um, in Sweden, it was, um, at least in the area of, of Dalarna, this was quite a common way to gather people. 
uh, because Dalarna is uh, a place with lots of forests and there's uh, you can't really communicate in in a lot of ways there uh, and one thing one one version of of the bidding stick uh, was that it's basically just a piece of wood but one end would be charred by fire and the other end would be wrapped in in twine or cord and that would kind of symbolize that if you didn't uh, if you didn't uh, uh, follow the calling or, or do what you're supposed to do uh, and uh, go to the gathering and and also make sure that the, the bidding stick got passed on to the next village you would be hanged <laughs> and your your farm would be burned down uh, so so it's kind of it's it's it, this is important stuff uh, and also later on you had uh, at least in Sweden you had laws that if a bidding stick came around because there was a forest fires f- forest fire you could be fined quite heavily uh, if you didn't show up and help fight the forest fire because of course you didn't have uh, modern fire trucks and stuff like that so a forest fire oh, could yes. be very dangerous for for a lot of people um and and not just things like this you had i don't know if they actually have a name i think they're just called counting sticks but uh in instead of uh or as an alternative to bookkeeping uh you could you would have basically you take a piece of wood and then you uh you split it in such a way so that i get half of it and you get half of it and say that i'm supposed to 20 uh, head of deliver uh yeah, for example, uh, then or or uh, yeah, for, so for each head of cattle, uh, we would uh, we, we would hold those sticks together, and you would make a, uh, a cut that goes uh, across yeah. uh, both sticks. Uh, and when time comes for me to get paid for those heads of cattle, uh, I would bring my stick, and you would bring your stick, and we would add them together and make sure that all of the lines matched up. Uh, and if they did, then we knew that none of us had cheated, and I would get my pay. Uh, and you you would use this for for lumber deliveries or or um, grain deliveries or basically whatever. And and it's quite an ingenious system, and it's a very simple one. And it was around for for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, I know that in uh, in in northern Uppland where I live, uh, or north of me. Uh, you would have way up into the 18th century when um, charcoal burners would deliver charcoal to uh, to the iron industry. They would still use those, uh, even though the the literacy was beginning to be at least fairly common. So, but it, it's still an easy way. And and if it ain't broke, don't fix it. it. Yeah, if, exactly. Why change something if it works? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so yeah, you. I, I like the fact that they point out the widespread illiteracy, but there are still ways to communicate even if you can't read or write. Yeah. So the rest of the chapter focuses on preparing and running a chronicle, and it's all good stuff. I like how they also get advice on how to end chronicles, as that mm. can sometimes be a problem. Um, so, so yeah, this this last section with all the advice, I really like that. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh and there's there's a lot of it, so it it's kind of daunting uh, if you're reading this and and you're like, yeah, I wanna I wanna run my first uh, game, and you see that, wow, do I really need <laughs> need to do all this? And no, you probably don't. No, but it's just just pick out what you think that you and your players would enjoy and leave the rest for the next time. Exactly. 
Chapter 9 is Allies and Antagonists. It gives us rules for ghouls and revenants, true faith and the Inquisition, as well as werewolves, mages, ghosts, the fae and demons. I like how they mention that it, in 1230 there is no centralized papal inquisition. And in general, I think true faith is appropriately powerful and scary for vampires. I also like how they mention other faiths than just Catholic Christianity. That was uh, mm. what you complained about. But here they actually yeah. do mention them. Yeah. M- mention that they, they exist. But you're right, they should, probably should have mentioned it earlier. I'm not a fan of demons getting spirit traits from werewolf like rage, gnosis and essence. But it does make sense th- since this book's rules will also be used for Dark Ages werewolf. And finally, as I've mentioned, I ge- don't generally like mixing game lines. So I don't like that they mention specific tribes when describing werewolves. But that is just a personal preference. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm mixed about that as well because it's it could be a fun thing to show that that werewolves aren't just these kind of brutish hulking warriors uh, or, or enemies to be killed but uh, that there's more to them and then it kind of makes sense that well if you're gonna create or, or if you're gonna um, include werewolf society then you might as well just include the one that that is already there uh, but but yeah i i see your point and it's yeah, I'm, I'm having mixed feelings with it because I don't like mixing my games either. Um, another thing that I think is just kind of interesting is uh, the fact that, that ghouls can be... When you think about it, ghouls can be really, really powerful because oh, yes. they can learn all the physical disciplines basically on their own, which uh, not even vampires necessarily can do. But what really struck me that I hadn't really thought about, and I don't know if it's it's been included in this kind of way earlier uh, or in, in previous books, and that's the fact that revenants can be fucking terrifying because they they can produce their own vitae yeah. uh, that they can use to fuel their disciplines. And now I'm starting to like really, really realize just how powerful uh, did Simichi would be like sure not not everyone or I, I'm assuming that not every mortal belonging to a revenant family technically is a revenant who has uh, who, who has all of the, the powers but still we're, we're still talking about hundreds if not thousands of, of people that can use disciplines and who regenerate their own vitae, uh, and and those those Simichi armies uh, running around in in Eastern Europe is now way more terrifying, and I love it. <laughs> Might that have something to do with the fact that you will at some point be playing a Simich warlord in a lap? Well, not only, but it's, it's, it, it doesn't hurt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I should probably also mention that while I personally don't like mixing game lines i have no problem with playing in campaigns where they it's being it's done as long as you know it's it's being done in in an interesting way because i'm currently playing in a chronicle where we have some werewolf mixed into the to the vampires and i don't have a problem with Mm. it it's just not something that i do myself um yeah we end with an appendix of merits and flaws as well as stats for animals and various supernatural beings I personally like merits and flaws as long as the storyteller supervises them. I don't yeah. think that 
you should just throw it open and say, take whatever merits and flaws you want. It it should be in a situation where you, where the storyteller and the player talk about it, because otherwise you can end up in situations where someone just goes all out in in trying to min max and. Yeah, I mean, there there are some fun things you can do with it, but I think it should be in support of an interesting character. Um, as for the stats, they're good to have, though it's kind of weird that the stats for demons, I think they have two different demons here, they don't match the rules for demons given earlier. Uh, so they, they have rules for demons, then they give an example of demons to use as antagonists, or possibly even uh, allies if you want to call up demons that have completely different rules, but I don't know. Um, and finally... The stats for the animals show that you can get in a, into a bit of, of trouble trying to model uh, animals when using the storyteller system, where it's only five yeah. dots. There's some of those stats where you look at and go, no, that 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 looks kind of odd. Like for example, all horses having higher endurance than your average human, when in fact humans are on average yeah. more enduring than horses are. Yeah, I I do like that that mules have a really high willpower yeah <laughs> that, that kind of makes anyone who has had anything to do with a mule or a uh, or a donkey knows that that is quite in, uh, accurate uh, but but yeah and and again we, we come back to the fact that that the kind of um combat system or or the the mechanics is has always been the kind of weak spot in the storytelling system and and yeah, it it's gonna be a problem. Uh, but do what do what best or the best you can do with it. Yeah. And so we're done with the core book of Dark Ages Vampire. So let's uh, let's do uh, an overall look at it. When it comes to historical content, well, as mentioned, there isn't enough of it. Most of the stuff outside the combat chapter is decent, but I really wish we'd gotten some kind of unified primer on the medieval world. So that's my take on the historical part of it. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's a very simplified version of the Dark Ages, uh, which doesn't necessarily uh, have to be uh, a bad thing, but for for someone someone like me and you as well and i'm assuming at least some of the listeners <laughs> uh, of, of this podcast it's it's just not enough i i like the the small things that they got uh, that they got right and i can easily do away with the the, the things that they gone wrong uh, i can do away with that myself yeah exactly uh, but yeah it's it's a uh, it's an isolation that it's too little i i want more please yeah <laughs> As a core book, I think it does a, it does a good job. It presents the rules and the supernatural parts of the setting very well. And I think it's an overall improvement over the first edition, making changes that integrates the game better into the medieval setting. So as a core book for uh, Vampire the Masquerade, or sorry, Vampire uh, the Dark Ages, I think that it is a very good book. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's a bit more streamlined. Uh, I I like that they they do mention that uh like if if you're good enough at something then you don't really need to roll they they mentioned that at some point uh the automatic successes that you get from potents for example uh unless you really really like rolling a bunch of dice <laughs> uh, and and that's just up to each and every uh, to each and everyone's personal uh preference uh, like we mentioned, the the whole combat system is kind of clunky, and and the whole rolling for initiative, doing the kind of reverse order where the person 
with the lowest initiative uh, describes what they're going to do, but then they're still going to act last. I I see what they're going for, but it's it's a very clunky system that gets a bit getting used to. Um, as we mentioned, the, the combat system with uh, with weapons and stuff like that has uh, its flaws as well. But but overall, I I really like it, and there's there are especially from this time period there are a lot of systems that is that are uh, way worse uh, and so for what it is i really like this system as well yeah so i think ultimately the question is this is a core book so you should be able to run a game just using this book can you do that and for me i would say when it comes to clans disciplines rules all that Absolutely, you can. You don't need the various bloodlines. You don't need any additional rules than what's already here. I think that, yes, you could absolutely, rules-wise, run a chronicle. And when it comes to their description of vampire society and things like that, also, I think you could run a game. What this is missing as a core book is more information about mortal society. You can't, I would say, run a Dark Ages vampire game set in the year 1230 just using this book without having to do at least some research. And obviously you also you always want to do research, but I think in this case you would have to do some basic research because you don't get any basic information. You get some very basic information, but if I say oh, I would like to run a game set in France. I can't find any information about yeah. mortal France in this book, mm -hmm. for example. So I think that's yeah. the one point that it's missing. Yeah, and uh, and I completely agree. Uh, just, just mentioning that I do like that they managed to include so many things that are important for from a vampiric uh, point of view, like, for example, that they... Uh, give enough room to both ghouls and and revenants and and war ghouls and um, homunculi and and things like that is is really nice because like if, if you play uh, uh, Tsimichi you really want to know about yeah. the revenants and stuff like that or if, if you play a, a Cappadocian then then you would want uh, hom homunculi probably but but as you mentioned yeah it's you you don't really get the rest of what you need and. If like if this would have been just a, a, a generic fantasy game, then it wouldn't be a problem because you can just make up your own fantasy world or, or it doesn't even have to be a, a whole country. It could just be a small province somewhere and you can just make it up as you go along. But if you're playing Vampire the Dark Ages and you want it to be and as you mentioned, you want it to be set in, in actual France in, in the year 1230, then you don't really, you, you can't really make, or of course you can, but it's it's not really going to be France in the year 1230 if you make, make everything up by yourself. And you kind of need it because otherwise it's just going to be a generic fantasy game but with with vampires instead. And, and that's, yeah, it's... I, I feel that I'm not going to say that it's a disappointment, but I I would have loved to see more just because it's the rest of it is so, so good already. Yeah. Now that the core book is done, the next book we're going to take a look at is Dark Ages Storyteller's Companion. Remember, if you want to support the channel, we have a Patreon. And if you have comments, suggestions or critique, you can pop by our Facebook page. And with that, Peter, do you have any last comments before we sign off? 
No, but I do have a really disgusting anecdote about tuberculosis that uh, I, I realized that I didn't bring up when we were talking about disease and stuff. But I, I leave that to uh, to the Facebook group, I think. <laughs> uh, but uh, except for that, I don't know if this uh, episode goes out before uh, New Year's Eve. I'm I'm thinking not. So. Uh, happy New Year's uh, anyways, and I hope uh, 2022 is going to be a good one for everyone. And uh, just a great big thanks to, to all of our listeners, all our patrons, and everyone who tells their friends and family about uh, this podcast. Uh, it's amazing to have you all with us. Yes, Happy New Year to everyone out there, and I hope 2022 is going to treat everyone better than 2021 did. And so... It is goodbye from me, Jacob. And from me, Peter. Farewell, and see you next time. Bye.